If you have your Bibles, uh, grab them and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to begin uh, the summer study where we will walk through 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. You probably know a little bit about Peter, uh, but second to Jesus, Peter is the most talked about person in the Gospels. We know a lot about Peter. We've heard a lot about him, seen a lot of his story. But this time, as we look at Peter, we're going to look at the way that he writes a letter of encouragement, if you will, to a church that has been exiled. Um, I want to make sure that you get the context because the context that we live in today is a lot different than the context that the early Christians lived um, a few thousand years ago. These that Peter are writing to are Gentile Christians who have been persecuted and are being persecuted for their faith. Peter's going to call them exiles because they've been scattered from their homelands. And he's writing to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. First few verses of the letter kind of give us a little bit of a picture of who he's writing to. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect scattered through the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance." He says a couple of things in the introduction. He says who he is. He's an apostle. He's a sent one. An apostle is a sent one. Peter's a sent one. He says who they are. They are God's chosen people. He says where they are. They're exiles. And he says what's happened to them. They have been chosen and they have been sanctified through the work of the Spirit. And he gives them instruction in how they're to live. They're to live obedient lives in Jesus Christ. And he reminds them of the posture and how they're to love each other. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. I love that little greeting at the end of the introduction. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. It's just a really cool way to bless this little church. Well, I guess it's a group of churches. How about uh, we just bless each other? Could we Maybe you could just say to the person next to you this little phrase, grace and peace be yours in abundance. You want to do that? Go ahead, do that. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. That's a pretty cool blessing. Not just a little bit of grace and peace, not just some, but God's grace and his peace be yours in abundance. It's a beautiful blessing. I want to give you an overview of the whole letter. And the best way that I could do that is to defer to the guys at the Bible Project. Some of you know the website, uh, thebibleproject.org. Those guys have done an incredible job giving us an overview of the main themes of every book of the Bible. And so I want you to watch this video as we get an overview of uh, the letter that Peter writes, 1 Peter. Um, I want you to Check out this video and we'll talk a little bit about it. We'll have a little short quiz after it's over. Just kidding. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. 
When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now, Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus, they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening song. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover lamb. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now, by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story, and this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. 
nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now, this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. Got it? Let's take out a piece of paper and I'll ask you a couple questions. And there's so much going on here. There's so much good news here. 
uh, this morning and then over these next few weeks, we're just going to look at one chapter at a time. Today, I'm just going to pull out a couple truths from chapter one. But I got to tell you, there's no way after watching that, you know, there's no way that I can talk about all that's going on in this book. I want to encourage you to dive in to God's word for yourself. Spend some time in this chapter. Dig into what the word is saying to you. We uh, began with those first couple of verses. Uh, the next couple of verses in my Bible, the title of, uh, above verses 3 through verse 12 says, Praise God for a living hope. Praise God for a living hope. You and I have a living hope. We don't have a hope that was or we don't have a hope that one day will be. We have a living hope, a hope that is alive. We have someone who is, someone who was, and someone who will be. We have a living hope in Jesus Christ. Peter writes this song of praise, verse 3 through verse 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in his great mercy, has, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter says three things are going to happen to us when we are born again, when we are born into this living hope in Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. He says we're given a new family centered around Jesus. We're given a new identity as God's beloved children. And thirdly, we're given a new hope has a new hope of a world that's reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as king. And he sets all of this in the context of suffering. He says all of this in the context of a people who are suffering. He says we have this hope that suffering actually purifies us. And our suffering points us not to a distant God, but to a God who is present with us right here, right now. A God who ultimately will redeem all suffering a God who uses even suffering to draw us to himself. Check out verse 8 and want you to see verse 9. We'll talk about verse 9. But verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay, this is really important. Um, I want you to notice the language in verse 9. You are receiving. You are receiving the end result, the salvation of your soul. You are receiving now the end result of your salvation. Not, not you have received. Not one day you will receive. You are receiving. It's an active, living, ongoing, receiving nature of God's good news of Jesus. There was a time... In your past, when you were saved, right? There was a time. Actually, let's back up a second. Uh, let, no, this is not a trick question. This is not a trick question. How many of you were saved? Raise your hand. How many of you were saved? Not a trick question. How many were saved? There was a time in your past when you were saved, when you believed 
and received and, if you will, stepped across the line of faith and you said, yes, I believe and receive, I, I, I believe and receive in Jesus as my Lord. There was a time in which uh, almost everybody in this room was saved. That, not a trick question. There was a time in your past where you were saved. That was the beginning of your salvation. And yet Peter is saying, right now we get to experience salvation as an end result, right? An end result. One day we're finally going to be home. One day we're finally going to be free. One day all this is going to be over. All the suffering is going to end. He's saying that right now we get to experience that end result right now in this life. We are receiving in the here and now. We have the ability, we're given the capacity to live in the here and now as in heaven. The end result of our faith. So this new Gentile, persecuted, exiled, suffering follower of Jesus has been given the supernatural power through the Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory, to live on earth right now as it is in heaven. You and I are receiving means that we can be continually transformed by the gospel to actually live and love like Jesus. So, you might know somebody or maybe you were a person who said, yeah, I got saved. I mean, I'm saved. I got saved when I was in high school or I got saved when I was a little kid, you know. But you might know that person who's not growing in their faith who just say, I got saved. I mean, I got my ticket, you know. I'm, I'm going to heaven. I, I, I. The person who's not growing, the person who's not investing in, the person who's not experiencing the goodness and grace of God may be missing the full intention of salvation, the full intention of salvation is a whole lot more than just receiving a ticket that saves you from the eternal fires of hell. It's about living in the here and now in the beauty and grace and freedom of Jesus Christ. The next couple of verses talk a little bit more about this. Uh, so stay with me. Verses 10, 11, and 12. Concerning this salvation, right? That's what he's talking about. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven in this crazy line. Even angels long to look into these things. Let's go back to this, these first couple of words in verse 10. Concerning this salvation. What you believe about salvation is huge. It is so huge. Concerning this salvation. This salvation is not something that just happened in the past. Or that's something that will happen in the future. But it's a miraculous mystery that is manifesting in your life right here right now in the ordinary everyday ongoings of your life as a saint uh, you guys know that I love J.D. Walt J.D. Walt uh, makes a couple of observations about this salvation he says this salvation doesn't begin with original sin but with original glory he says it doesn't begin with the fall from grace but the glory of Eden it doesn't begin with the problem of sin, but with the power of God. Before there was ever a sinner, there was already a Savior. This salvation does not just save sinners from the penalty of sin. It delivers saints from the power of sin. This salvation is a comprehensive, full-throated 
Sin has lost its power and death has lost its sting. This salvation recognizes you were created in the image of Almighty God and darkness corrupted and sin distorted this image beyond recognition, but great grace restores it utterly and completely. This salvation is not merely a spiritual solution. This salvation is the totalizing cure, as in the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, lepers cleansed, dead raised, poor hear, good news. That is what this salvation is all about. This salvation is not just about forgiveness. It's about freedom. It's not just about pardon. It's about power. This salvation is not just about escaping hell in the future. It's living on earth right now in the reality of the kingdom of God. And this salvation is not just about me and Jesus. This salvation is about me and you and Jesus. This salvation is about the body of Christ and the communion of saints bound together and enfolded in the extravagant embrace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This salvation has been long awaited, eagerly sought, suffered for, patiently expected, and it's now being revealed to you right now. It was revealed to them, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. This is what is being revealed to you right now and to me right now, to my kids right now. Now, I don't know if you're still with me, but it's about to get even more crazy. So check out these next couple of verses, verses 13 through 21. This is what we do with all of this. What happens with uh, uh, this salvation is what these next couple of verses talk about. Therefore, therefore, right? There it goes. Therefore. So I'm about to tell you what's going to happen. He says, but don't forget about what I just told you. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with the perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. You and I were redeemed from the empty way of life, verse 18, to live holy lives in the here and now. Okay, anybody remember the empty way of life? Could you guys remember that? Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe the empty way of life, maybe I could describe it as before you crossed over the line of faith, before you came to that place where you said, does anyone remember the empty way of life? Man, I can remember that. I can remember it so clearly. It was a life filled with self-will, right? Self-rule, self-interest, self-advancement, empty way of life. And there's a way of life, it's even an empty way of life, where we sort of pretend to care about others, even though it's really about ourselves. That's just as empty, even though it looks a little bit differently. 
Peter says, don't, no, that, that empty way of life, let that empty way of life go. And then he says, be holy in all that you do. And then he quotes the Old Testament. I love it when Peter quotes the Old Testament. This is Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. Be holy because I am holy. I want to make sure that you get the order of these words because this is significant to our salvation. Holiness is significant to our salvation. But make sure you get the order of these words. Be holy in all you do. This is really important because I want to make sure you get the order of these words. It doesn't say you will become holy by what you do. Right? You got that? It doesn't say do a bunch of things and then you will become holy. Or it doesn't say don't do these things and then you will become holy. That's not what it says. Be holy in all that you do. Go on being holy is what it literally says in all you do. I'm not sure how you were raised, but I was raised the other way. I was raised with the words a little bit out of order I was raised that in this world, there are things that are holy and there are things that aren't holy. And if you do the things that aren't holy, then you will be unholy. And the more you hang around people who do unholy things, then obviously you're going to be unholy. And if you do the things that you're supposed to do, then you will be holy, right? That was the, that was the way that I was raised. I don't know if anybody here, does anybody relate to that? Anybody here? Just a couple of us? Okay. I will pray for you guys. You pray for me. So just a couple of examples, like swearing in a soccer game was unholy, right? If you swear in a soccer game, man, you're in real trouble of losing your salvation. Or cheating, you know, at a board game or something like that with your mom. Or lying, right? That was a big one around our house. Or drinking, oh my gosh, if someone who drank, they were unholy. And what was going to happen to people who were unholy? A little bit louder. They're going to hell. That is just the way that I was raised. So swearing, cheating, lying, drinking, if you do those things, you become unholy. Kissing girls. Oh my gosh, Era. <laughs> Kissing girls. Dancing. Or listening to punk rock music. Or kissing girls while you dance, listening to punk rock music. You're really, really in serious trouble. But it can happen, and it's a really good thing. Anyway, we'll move on. Right, babe? She's not listening to me. All right. <laughs> you don't become holy by what you do. I want, you guys got to hear me. You don't become holy by what you do. You don't become holy by what you don't do. I had it totally backwards growing up. You are holy. Be holy in all that you do. It's such an invitation to this whole new family that we're a part of, this whole new identity. We are already made holy by what Jesus did, by what he did makes you holy. You are holy. And from that place in who you are, then our lives, the way that we think, the way that we believe, the way that we act, reflect who we are in Christ. We are holy. Be holy in all that you do. I just got to say this really quick illustration. Uh, I know it's going to make some of you nervous, but some of you know that I was not the greatest parent of all time. But when my younger daughter was in high school at Harrison, there were some things that were going on at Harrison. It was kind of crazy. And she was like involved in all kinds of stuff. She was and she said, Dad, there's these, the whole, all these kids are going to this party, and there's going to be drinking there, and, I, and there's going to be dancing there. And I think, you know, and there might be even like some 
bad words there and punk rock music might be played there. And I was like, I want to go to this party with you. Are you inviting me to this party? Yes. And she said, man, you're not taking me seriously. Dad, this is really serious. There are some kids in my school who want me to fall. So there are some kids in my school that want, they know I'm a preacher's kid. They know you. They know I'm a preacher's kid and they want me to fall. And so they want me to get drunk. And I'm so afraid, Dad, that I'll go to this party and I'm like, you're not, what? Hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm so afraid, she said, that I'm going to fall. I'm like, hold on, hold on. No, we had this big conversation. Christy was involved. It's a big conversation. And the night of uh, that she was getting ready to go to this party, I said to her, uh, hey, listen, babe, do not be on your best behavior. <laughs> and Christy was like, okay, wait, wait, where's this going? Where's this going? And she goes, dad, you don't tell high school seniors not to be on their best behavior. I'm like, listen, I know who you are and you know who you are. But if you go to this thing thinking you're so freaked out that, oh my gosh, I'm going to drink. Oh my God. If, you, if you're thinking about all the things that you can't do, then you're totally going to be lost. But if you trust who you are in Christ and who he says you are in Christ, you won't even think about doing it. She's like, no, I, I'm not even tempted. I'm not even tempted. I'm just worried about what all these kids are saying or what all these kids might I'm not even tempted, she said. And that, I said, that's exactly right. You don't have to be on your best behavior. You don't have to try to do all, strive to live this certain life. If you are you, you are holy, you are made clean, you're gonna be just fine. And she went to that party and had a really good time and had a terrible time at the same time, but she knew who she was and she came home perfectly fine. We spend so much time around here talking about all the things we're not supposed to be doing when God has given us this whole life to live. Instead of talking about all the things we shouldn't be doing or telling people to stop doing, how about telling people what we get to do? How about telling people what we get to experience? We get to experience an inexpressible and glorious joy in Christ Jesus. We're no longer sinners. We're saints. We're not unholy because of what we do. We're made holy. And because of our holiness, our decisions then reflect, our decisions then reflect a whole new way of life and a whole new way of living and a whole new way of loving. That's what the next couple of verses talk about. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. All people are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then he goes, and this is the word preached to you. Verse 22 reminds us that we are purified and called to obey the truth. We're already holy. Now let's just live into our holiness. We're called to live into our holiness and then to reflect his holiness to a lost and dying world. I want you to, I want you to get the Greek here. I want you to get the Greek term for obedience. So just, just take a look at this real quick. Greek term for obedience. There's this Greek word which means, which I can't pronounce, which means in the most literal sense, hypo or under. So the term obedience comes from two different Greek words put together. Hypo, under, and this okuo, which means here. The okuo, uh, is where we get our English word acoustics. So obedience, under and here. To hear while sitting under. 
we're sitting under the truth. We hear the truth. We're sitting under the truth. How do we obey? We sit under the truth. We learn about our identity in Christ, who we are, whose we are. We learn how to be obedient by sitting under in the most literal sense. That's what obedience looks like. And then we get up from there and be holy in all that we do. In fact, Paul writes these words to the church in Philippi. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. As you are sitting under the word, made alive and afresh by the Spirit of God, reminding you of who you are and whose you are, then we work out our salvation. We work out the way that we think, we work out the way we believe, and we work out the way we act together from that place of who we are and whose we are. And then Peter says, super clearly, Peter says, this is how obedience is expressed. Love one another deeply from the heart. This is what obedience looks like. Obedience looks like you and I loving one another deeply from the heart. So, a couple quick questions before I close. What does it feel like when someone loves you deeply from the heart? You guys know the difference? You know the difference when someone loves you and when someone loves you deeply from the heart? It's expressed just a little bit differently, isn't it? And then the second question I'd just love for you to consider, what does it cost you to love someone from your heart? What does it cost you? Maybe at lunch or uh, this afternoon, you could talk about this with your family or with your friends or text a friend and maybe you could ask the question, what would it look like for me to love you deeply from the heart? That'd be a cool question to ask your next door neighbor. Hey, What would it look like for me to love you deeply from my heart? A life of holiness, a life of obedience, is one that chooses to love one another deeply from the heart, sincerely from the heart. Peter, probably more than anyone else on the planet, hung around with Jesus, knew Jesus the best. Peter was the guy that was there the whole time, right? And these words uh, Peter would know, um, these are the words that I want to close with. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then Jesus brings it down to this one last thing, the very essence of obedience and holiness, really the very essence, the meaning of life itself. Greater love has no one than this. Then he laid down his life for his friends. That's obedience. That's holiness. That's what it looks like. Peter would know that's what it looks like to love one another deeply from the heart that we would lay down our lives for one another. We would subject our freedoms for one another for the sake of others. That's holiness. 
expressed and embodied. That's the word that is preached to you. Let's pray. Spirit, would you help us be reminded this morning of who we are and whose we are, that we are holy, that we are a saint. Spirit, would you help us remember that just as the Father loved Jesus, he loves us, he loves me. And would you help us, Spirit, to sit under, to abide in your love, And would you help us to trust this joy that is being made complete in us? Would you give us the strength to live out this truth that greater love has no one than this and to lay one's life down for their friends? Would you help us to do that? To love one another deeply from the heart? And now in these moments as we continue to worship and take communion together, pray together, sing together, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to speak to us, bringing us to a place of rest and to a place of joy. I pray in your name.